Hello, and welcome to Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice Lecture Series 2020 to 2021. That was a visiting lecture series coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, with Professor of Development Studies, Professor James Putzel. The Cutting Edge Series provides students and guests with invaluable insights into the practical world of international development, with experts sharing their expertise and invite discussion on an exciting range of issues from responses to the COVID-19 pandemic to climate change policy to decolonizing academia. During the academic year 2020-21 we moved the series online which meant we could host fantastic speakers from around the world and stream the series online opening up the lectures to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. So I want to welcome everybody and we have a return appearance tonight of Professor Danny Kwa talking to us from Singapore. Danny spent many years at the LSE. He was for part of that time, professor jointly in our department and in the um, Department of Economics. He was also director of the Southeast Asia Center here at the school, which uh, he did much to build up and is still going strong here. Um, Danny has served on many prestigious uh, boards, uh, including Commissioner on the Spence Stiglitz Commission on Global Economic Transformation. Uh, he's known far beyond the academy. He's had, he, he has fantastic TED Talks, um, several of them, which I highly recommend to you. And his blog has regularly been named one of the top 100 economics blogs in the world. Mm-hmm. And since, Danny, I gave you a very long introduction last time, I will keep it shorter this time. Um, he um, He's going to speak to us tonight on, on shifting global power um, towards Asia, and we're absolutely uh, excited to hear him. Um, as a discussant tonight, we have our own Professor Robert Wade, who's well known to all of us here, Professor of Political Economy and Development at our International Development Department. He's really famous for his book, Governing the Market, a pioneering study of the developmental state uh, in Taiwan, and a prolific analyst of international finance and financial crises, uh, the go-to person for critically understanding not only the evolving policies of the World Bank, IMF, and WTO, but also the organizational ethnography of those nodes of international power. And Robert, students this week in, in, in our core course where discussing and debating your work, um, particularly uh, this, uh, the, the, your, your work on paradigm ma- maintenance um, in the international system. Mm-hmm. So without further ado, I want to pass over the screen to Danny Kwa. Welcome again, Danny. Thank you, James. I hope my microphone is on. I'm Perfect. just going to take a second and put on my screen to share. Uh, because I do have a presentation with some information on it that I'd like to take us through. Um, Thank you, everyone, for letting me into uh, your your day today. I'm imposing on you a second time, but I really regretted not being able to get to speak to you properly last time. Uh, This time of year at LSE actually has always been one of my favorite times. And James joked a bit about how 
you know, everything gets dark, but it's actually something that where I always felt it was very cozy. Now, what I want to talk to you this evening about is world order. World order, I think of as a set of international rules, relationships between nations, the international architectures whose institutions include IMF, World Bank, and other things that, that James has mentioned, that Robert studies. Uh, world order includes the norms and the modalities by which nations operate on the international landscape. And the reason world order matters to us as development professionals is that world order is the architecture within which we operate when our economy, whichever economy we're working in, engages with the rest of the world. That's maybe a slightly technical but more formal definition of world order. James mentioned uh, to me earlier that, you know, Hajun Chang is coming to speak to you in the same series next term. And of course, world order figures also in some of Hajun's writing, because in some of that writing and often in some of our own thinking, world order is often something we rail against in our conscience. We say the institutions of it, the IMF, the World Bank, don't work for us. We say that world order is a system that's been constructed by the rich to benefit the rich. It is a system that's meant to keep down the poor, or as Harjun says vividly, kicking away the ladder. This evening, I want to argue that despite what my good friend Harjun says, world order is not that kind of a, a, a sinister construction. I want to argue that, in fact, the good that world order sets out to do, it has indeed achieved in considerable part. It's not perfect, but it's done a great deal of good. Indeed, I want to argue that the newcomers, those that in Harjun's de depiction and those that, that, that Robert might describe as, as objecting to the operations of the IMF and the World Bank, the newcomers, those still climbing the ladder, actually, I want to argue that they should not be seeking to do away with the current world order. But whether they want to or not, actually, I'm going to argue, is irrelevant. See, because today it is the original designer of the system, the architect of the system, that no longer finds the system useful to them. Far away from their trying to kick away the ladder so that others can't climb up, they want to kick away the ladder because they don't think it's any good anymore. They want to do away with the international system. Your job and mine and what I want to explore this evening is first to think about what ought to replace that current system. Because actually, if you buy what I just said, nobody wants the current system to continue. Not the newcomers, not the old guard. Nobody likes it. But I think that it is, but as I said just a few minutes ago, I think that's actually done a lot of good. And if we're going to replace it, we need to be absolutely ruthless in our thinking about what principles, what evidence we use to redesign world order. Now, sometimes world order is referred to as the international system. So when we think about it that way, 
a particular instance of world order is a vertical hierarchy. What you see in the slide that, that should be showing on the extreme left, there is a number one top nation that writes the rules of the game. It is the one that monitors the compliance for those rules. It is the one that sanctions and punishes those who violates those rules. It is the one that welcomes new members to the circle or excludes others from it. It is natural in that setting, in this first linear, hierarchical, vertically organized geometry of world order, it is natural in that setting to think of that top nation as the hegemonic leader of such a world order. If you and I are going to be serious about reconsidering what world order should be, seems to me one way to begin is to, as this slide says, consider alternative geometries of world order. So on the extreme right of this picture is an alternative geometry where nations are not hierarchically ranked, but instead there's some interlocking complicated network that tells us about, well, yes, the norms and modalities of interaction. What I want to do in the time, the short time that I've got with you is not be able to go through all alternative geometries, but the one that sits at the bottom of this slide, which is a picture of demand and supply, which is a picture of a marketplace. And I want to use this picture to argue that you and I, the users of this international system, the development professionals who go out to villages in Tanzania, who go out to visit new industrial sites in Taiwan or in Singapore, the users of the international system, not the hegemons, that we can re be represented in this marketplace for world order. And by understanding the dynamics and the forces that work in this marketplace, we can manipulate it. We can use economics for good to redesign an international system. Now, that's a ways down the way. And so, I mean, that's a ways down the road. It might be years before we get there. It'll be at least 30 minutes before we come to that in this uh, lecture. So we're going to proceed in steps. Many observers, when they think about the first of these geometries, they think that that's how world order has been for the last seven decades. And as you can see, it does look like a ladder where there's top nations and other nations trying to climb up. Well, this particular hierarchy, many observers would refer to as the American century because America was the number one top nation. And it was the one that organized this international system. Um, some others might think of it and might describe it as a US-centered unipolar world order. There was a single pole, the number one nation, and it was centered on, the, and the entire system was centered on the United States. Of course, you know, the American century is, a, is a, a span of time. So many observers also think about the last seven decades as the American century. And those who defend the American century 
uh, right, academics like Joseph Nye and others think of the American century as still having a ways to go. It's still going to keep going. Those who, like Donald Trump, who don't think that this system works for them, want to unravel it. But this, but everyone agrees that to the extent that the American century, this first geometry of world order, this vertically ordered linear hierarchy, it was kept in place by a number of attributes. Power was the key attribute, power of the United States, unrivaled militarily, technologically, scientifically, economically, all the dimensions of hard power, but also through Joseph Nye's own preference, soft power, the attractiveness, the admiration, the respect that the United States enjoyed among the rest of the world. And whether you look at hard power, soft power, any of these attributes, prestige, whatever it is you were interested in, for most of the American century, the US was number one in all of these dimensions. However, whoever measures it, whenever it's measured, however those attributes are ranked, America was the unrivaled unipolar center of that geometry of that world order. It is no longer so evident that the American century will continue. America itself, through the presidency and administration of Donald Trump, constantly, consistently argued that the international system, this American century, did not work for the United States. Adding, actually, taking the same side as Ha Jun Chang, who argued also this international system didn't work for the developing nations. Nobody thought this system worked. Well, I'm going to stand up tonight and defend it but also suggest that it's time has passed and we need to move on. And what we're going to move on to, I want to argue, is the third icon that appears in this slide, the marketplace picture, and that you and I need to be working with that as our new model for world order. Okay, so what I'm going to take you through, I'll try to do this quite quickly because I'd like to get to questions. I want to hear what Robert thinks of, of all this. The structure of the talk is, is threefold. I want to talk about matters of world order, which basically puts together what I've just said in the introduction. So I'll go through that very quickly. But then I want to tell you, justify why unlike Donald Trump and unlike Ha Jun, I think that actually the international system was something that worked very well. And I want to bring some evidence to show you. It wasn't perfect. It didn't do everything that everybody wanted. No system would have done that but it did amazingly good things. But at the same time, it has reached its sell-by date for the reasons that I indicated, forces within the power centers. And what we need to do is to move to the third section, which are new models that rethink hierarchy and bring forwards the agency of other states in the world. Okay, so when I say it matters, here's what I mean. There's, it was the unipolar center that provided, uh, that, that constructed this international system. It constructed the IMF, the World Bank, and many of those who are not in the center say that there was a terrible system. We weren't represented enough. Uh, we didn't get enough votes at IMF. Uh, the decisions that the United States makes is not in our interest, so we don't like it. Well, 
Of course, if you wanted to be purist about this, you might say that if the world were truly a democracy, what we should be looking for is that majority of the world that would cast the deciding vote. Now, you can do a simple calculation. The majority of the world can be coughed up in different ways. But if you thought that the majority of the world came from a commonality of shared interests between people who are geographically concentrated, sure enough, justifying, warranting, uh, justifying the way of thinking that said that the unipolar center did not cater to the needs, the demands of the other side. Uh, sure enough, the concentration, the greatest concentration of demand for, the, for, the, for what world order should be providing them actually is depicted in this picture. The smallest circle that contains a democratic majority of the world's population is this circle. It is a circle 3,300 kilometers in radius, which is actually a relatively small circle covering only one-sixth of the world's land area, centered in Shan State, eastern Myanmar, covering a lot of the time zone that I'm speaking to you from, GMT plus eight, not the United Kingdom, not Western Europe or the European Union, not the United States, not the transatlantic axis. It is here that the needs of the world are most pronounced. But what did I say? I said that the international system did serve this. And why do I say that? Well, because the arc of the history of the global economy did point to this part of the world. And what I mean by that is a number of things. So first, the construction of this American century, the current world order, the international system that we are all so deeply critical of for all different reasons, it actually brought to the global conversation important ideas that previously we had not done. Because this vision, this vision of a US-centered unipolar world order, the American century, was not confined to the United States. It, it had its roots going back to Woodrow Wilson, Harry Truman, Richard Nixon, American presidents, all of whom had, had terrible failings, individual failings, but all of whom were united in the idea of a one-world vision of nation states that traded and interacted with each other on a level playing field on an equal basis, because in the writings of Woodrow Wilson, despicable racist though he might be, of Harry Truman, whose family was closely associated with the Ku Klux Klan, in the writings of these people came the idea that there should be the same law for nations as, for your, as what you observe for individuals in the United States, that America at the center of the unit of this US-centered unipolar system would hegemonically provide global public goods. It would act like a government, although it wasn't allowed to say that because nobody in America liked the idea of a world government. But America could step forward and be that benevolent government to the rest of the world. Woodrow Wilson consistently emphasized we needed reign of we needed rule of law based on the consent of the governed, that small circle on the other side of the world, sustained by the organized opinion of humanity. What could be better? This was the liberal order. And the historical arc that it brought about brought huge big ideas that were important, multilateralism, 
open trade, global architecture, a mutual security understanding, level playing field. Who could argue against the level playing field? It's not a ladder that you're trying to kick out from under me. It's a level playing field where we all have equal shot. Benevolent leadership, inclusiveness and transparency. It, it thought about the world in a benevolent way, in a positive some way, where each nation helped itself by helping others. Now, all of this might be just empty rhetoric, but here's what happened to the world in the course of this time. The world had its economic center of gravity firmly anchored in the transatlantic region in the decades running up to 1980. This is a picture that takes literally the idea of the World Economic Center of Gravity and calculates it. And it showed that in 1980, the World's Economic Center of Gravity sat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. But what happened in the decades after, as, as the American century kicked in, the American century did not keep the goodies to America. It did not keep the goodies to just Western Europe and the transatlantic axis. It allowed the global economic center of gravity to steadily drift eastwards. This, this, this shift of the world's economic center is sometimes interpreted as arguing that therefore the international system should change. I view it as the other in the other way. This is a statement that the international system worked to level the playing field, to flatten the earth, to make societies more equal one to the other. And you can see this in many ways. This is a picture that shows what uh, my co-author Kishore Mabubani and I describe as the globalization lift. So let me take a second to, to confirm what it says. This graph shows the ratio between the combined national income of 160 or so emerging countries as a fraction, as a ratio relative to the combined GDP of the G7, the world's then richest seven economies. And you'll see from this graph that that ratio was roughly constant for the decades from 1980, 1990, all the way until 2000. All of this was building up. What happened after 2000? Globalization really kicked in, and this ratio left its former domain. It picked itself up off a ratio left value of 30%, where the combined mass GDP of 160 emerging economies were only a third of the combined GDP of the G7. And when this ratio took off, this combined GDP went to parity. The combined weight of all the emerging nations relative to what used to be the world's richest countries is now one. Now, of course, yeah, one can be critical and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, when it's one, when this ratio is one, there's still 160 emerging countries compared to just seven rich countries. Yeah, that's true. But that was also true when the ratio was only 30%. The point is, it has changed and it has changed dramatically. And one could argue that all of this happened under the watch of what was supposed to be a very selfish, self-seeking, egocentric, ladder-kicking tendency, rich world. But the rich world allowed the poor world to converge towards them. 
they allowed catch up. Now, all of this, you might say, well, yeah, but this was against the wishes of the designers of the system. Pause for a second. The design of the system was actually, together with the presidents that I mentioned, American leadership that I mentioned, also the work of American intellectuals, journalists. And they were the ones who saw that the world ought to become like the United States. Their purposes, their goals might not have been entirely benevolent, but the upshot of what they did, crafting these big ideas of multilateralism, globalization, was a flattening of the world. For some of them, of course, it actually was a goal. For Harry Truman, again, whatever his personal failings, his view was that his presidency would be memorable because of this, that America not only defeated its enemies, but then brought them back, brought them back to the community of nations. This was a wonderful vision that empowered America forward, that, that drove America forwards into the American century. Henry Kissinger described uh, this conversation that he had with Harry Truman, exactly describing this pride. I'll skip this bit, but then go right to Richard Nixon. Okay, so while all of this was going on, China sat behind the bamboo curtain. It was an enemy, a geopolitical enemy of, you know, and this was in the 60s, a geopolitical enemy of the American century that was being built. They could have just left China with its close to a billion people to continue to experiment with the great leap forwards, with mass starvation, but they didn't. What did Richard Nixon say? Richard Nixon said, we cannot afford to leave China outside the family of nations, there to nurture its fantasies, cherish its hates, threaten its neighbors. He said, Richard Nixon, the man who, 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 who uh, secretly uh, bugged his political opponents, he said, there is no place on this small planet for a billion of its potentially most capable, most able people to live in angry isolation. And so Nixon, Truman, Woodrow Wilson made the world an inclusive place. A result of this, uh, one that, that I haven't produced a, a slide for, is actually the very first act, the very first agreement between the United States and China signed in 1979 between Jimmy Carter and Deng Xiaoping, building on what Richard Nixon tried to do with, with Mao Zedong, was an, a U.S.-China agreement between students and scholars that with the help of, uh, of uh, Teo Pei Yuan, great Chinese scholar, brought hundreds of thousands of Chinese students to the United States to see democracy in action, to learn what the American way of life was, to take whatever lesson they wanted from it and do whatever they wanted with it. This is an amazing vision. This was a nation that was self-confident, completely at ease with itself. So this is what the world was. This is what liberal internationalism and rules-based order was. And it brought all these wonderful things. The world was made an inclusive community with specific nations, not rulers, but leaders. The Amer America was not the ruler of the world. It led the world as a benevolent hegemon. It was a system structured by law. It created multilateral institutions. It was open but centered on certain ideas. It was a hegemon. 
but it practiced what Charles Kindleberger, the great economic historian, called hegemonic stability theory. Now, at this point, it looks like I am apologist for this Western-centric system. But remember, I'm coming into this, beaming it to you from the Far East, GMT plus eight, basing this these statements not on rhetoric, but based on what actually happened in terms of economic development in the world in the large. And again, this is not to say that that you know everything was 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 perfect. There remain 60 million poor people in Southeast Asia. Heck, there remains the bottom 50% of the United States population with incomes today lower than it was in than they were in 1980. The system wasn't perfect in the United States or anywhere else in the world. But it was a system that had all the best ideas. So if that's so wonderful, why would someone want to tear it down? Well, actually, there's reason for tearing it down because America was so successful and it brought so much of the world into the international space. America began to feel ill at ease with the international system that it built. Now, this is not the way that these scholars write about this, but you know, all of you will have heard of how the rise of China is challenging the United States and how scholars both in the United States and in China are talking about something called the Thucydides trap. The Thucydides uh, was, uh, was a Greek historian writing about 500 BC, documenting the Peloponnesian War, the war between Greek city-states, where, where he documented how there was a leader Greek city-state and a challenger to it. And when that challenger rose to within close enough of the leading city-state, they went to war. War broke out. And the scholars who think about the world this way, think about the Thucydides trap, argue that the, that lesson can be extrapolated to nations and that US and China are headed for war. This is an idea that actually has roots deep in academic scholarship, in, in, in parts of our profession, that is. John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago has long argued that this is an inevitable outcome. When you've got great powers contending for dominance in the international system, the way that each great power seeks to uh, keep its position secure is by attempting to contain other rising powers. And so the result is something terrible. Ships and missiles rattling in the South China Sea, China challenging the U.S. Navy in the Pacific, America threatening a technology war, threatening trade war, a U.S. Secretary of State under the Trump administration arguing for regime change basically in a sovereign nation, China, arguing that China, which has benefited so much from the international system, is in fact undermining the international system and, and, and China cheats. Now, all of that discussion is indeed undermining the international system because in all of that discussion, it's difficult to see how this US-centered unipolar world order will remain. So what do I want to recommend 
that we, <clears throat> as development professionals, many of us working in nations outside the United States or China, what should we do about this? Well, see, this is where I come in to thinking about this system, not as this great competition in a linear hierarchical way that is simply competition, rivalry between the great powers, but to try and ask, well, what exactly was America thinking when it put together this international system? What should you and I be thinking when we try and think about the new international system? But I want to argue that more than just you and me, development professionals, middle powers like the United Kingdom, small states like Singapore, what we're doing here is not just wishful thinking, but what you and I do actually carries agency in shaping the new world order. But I need to build a little bit to, to get us to that. So my first assertion is the international system should not be about just great power politics. The writers about the Thucydides trap, writers like John Mearsheimer, believe that it is. I want to argue that it's not. But there's actually a lot of resistance to this alternative view that I want to espouse because here's another scholar, another member of our academy, Kenneth Waltz, who in 1979 said that, well, you know, geopolitics, world order, the international system, that really is just the domain of great powers. It's ridiculous to think about states like Malaysia or Costa Rica or Singapore or, or the United Kingdom when you want to construct a theory of world order because all that world order should be about is about great power competition. Think about these great powers as being like the large oligopolistic firms in the sector of the economy. Everybody else is a minor firm. How that industry evolves can depend only on the large oligopolistic firms. I want to argue for the next few minutes that I've got that this view is actually wrong. I want to argue that based on analytical ideas in economics. I want to argue that based on empirical evidence, historical evidence. Thucydides, what Kenneth Waltz and John Mearsheimer say and what the Thucydides trap is about, Thucydides actually had a lot of time on his hands. He wasn't just thinking about the Thucydides trap. He also wrote things in the same chronicles like this. Thucydides wrote, the strong do what, the what they will, the weak suffer what they must. This 2,500 years before Kenneth Waltz is basically saying what Kenneth Waltz would say subsequently. It is the strong that enforce an outcome for geopolitical order. The weak, middle powers like the United Kingdom, small states like Malaysia, Costa Rica, Singapore, the weak suffer what we must. And I want to set that against another great political philosopher who said, don't confuse killing for politics. Uh, that Great political philosopher was, of course, Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones. He was in the midst of this great competition 
between the Lannisters and the dragons and the North. And he cautioned everyone, don't think that by going around killing people, you've actually established a new political system. Extrapolate that. Don't confuse discussions about international security for world order. Why? Because we come back to this. We come back to the idea that world order had a supply side which was providers of world order, like the United States, potentially China, other great powers. But what they compete for is tribute, is respect, is admiration, is alliance. With who? Well, with the rest of the world, with the demand side, with this circle, with a circle that earlier I said seemed incidental in world matters, turned out to have been served. Well, it is this circle that will now constitute the demand side in the marketplace for world order. So we come back to the picture that I began. I've just told you a story, a very quick history of the last 70 years. And in fact, going back to Thucydides over the last 2,500 years of alternative geometries of world order where the first picture, this vertical linear hierarchy of nations, is the way we that, that many scholars, when it comes to thinking about world order, visualize the world. And then when you visualize the world that way, the narrative becomes one of power. Who is the most powerful nation? Will the most powerful nation feel threatened when the second most powerful nation comes to 85% of the most powerful nation and on and on? I want to argue that we need to leave that behind. We could go towards the kind of complicated network structure. And in other versions of, of my work, I do that. But we could also go to something simpler, which is to think about a marketplace for world order. Now, I need to flesh in what that means to make this idea operational. Okay, so by a marketplace for world order, I want to, uh, it, it is a metaphor. It, I, I don't mean that there's a bazaar out there. You can actually go and purchase world orders, of course. What I mean is that there's a side to the international community of nations that are not in a position to be large enough, powerful enough, knowledgeable enough, expert enough, capable enough to provide goods, public goods to the rest of the world, to provide goods that are applicable to the entire community of nations. But they are still with us, the Malaysias and Costa Ricas of the world, because they're on the demand side. They're the consumers of world order. And like every consumers, every collection of consumers in a marketplace, there's a downward sloping schedule, the demand curve, that describes their behavior. Alternative suppliers, competitors, geostrategic rivals are the players on the supply side. Like every supply side, they describe an upward sloping schedule. And within that upward sloping schedule, you can imagine all the Thucydides trap that you want, all the fighting that you want. But the point is, at the end of it all, what they do is that they supply an organizational structure to the world. And what you and I should be doing at this point, given the breakdown of the American century, is trying to think what should go into this marketplace. If you are someone from Malaysia or Costa Rica and you want and you're a development professional, you why I feel if this is the area you want to go into, we should be thinking, what would I tell 
a great power as they come by and try to buy my affections, try to purchase me as an ally. What should I be wanting from them? So I want to take that, this idea forward. So just to be clear, this is the picture, the model that I'm going to go with. And the fact that you know this is a very stylized model should not hold us back because you can easily complicate the picture. Think about there being many different commodities, many different dimensions to world order. It is still a supply and demand picture. So I'm now going to finish the talk um, and, and then hand over to Robert because I've gotten to where I hope I've convinced you, carried you along enough to say that we should be thinking now about what we want from providers. So let me tell you my wish list. I am from a small state, but I'm speaking from, I think, uh, as a representative of the demand side in the marketplace for world order. The left side of this slide is my wish list. The right side of this slide is my taking a cold, hard look at the providers of world order and asking whether they are up to scratch, whether they can actually provide what they promise. Okay, so let's take this in turn. This is the marketplace now. We're on the demand side. We're checking this out. I want the supplier to be in a position to supply global public goods, take leadership on global climate change, take the war against plastics, be able to defend our global environment, set us, you know, be, be a trustee, a trusted, be a trusted maintainer of a level playing field as globalization had set out to do originally. I want my provider to have performance legitimacy. That is to say, they've actually got to be capable nations. They've got, they've got to be able to run their own financial systems well. They've got to show me an example of best practice that I can learn from. If I get at least these four ingredients on the left side, then I am willing, as Woodrow Wilson says, to, to provide consent of the government. I'm willing to provide and appoint someone as the hegemonic leader. Consent of the government for, for the Americans among you or for you know, others who are just, who just like to read old documents. Consent of the government, you'll recognize, is a phrase from the US Declaration of Independence. When they declared independence from the United Kingdom, they said that what we what, the way you run governments is that the government rules when it attracts consent of the government. If you want to be a provider of world order, you want to be a hegemonic leader of the world, you need the consent of the government. You've got to come close to satisfy my wish list. So now I look on the right side of this picture. I look around the world, what nations are actually doing this? Well, the American century, uh, when America was doing all these wonderful things, yeah, it, it, it supplied global public goods. It defended the world against natural disaster. It was, this, it was pushing on the science frontier and then disseminating knowledge to the rest of the world. If there were other big, if there were, you know, somewhat bigger nations bullying smaller nations, it came in and it tried to keep a level playing field. It didn't do all of this perfectly. In many instances, when it did do that, it was terribly self-serving, but that's okay. You don't have to do things with generosity to be rewarded with consent of the government. You just have to do the right thing. 
But when I look at the United States now, well, gosh, it's a rather different picture, isn't it? The United States has spent the last however many decades lecturing the rest of the world on prudence and financial regulation. However, the United States was the economy where the largest bubble, largest financial bubble in, in history emerged in the U.S. housing market, burst, caused the global financial crisis, and almost destroyed the global economy. COVID-19. When historians in the future look back on this time, look back on 2020 and look at COVID-19, I hazard that they will not be thinking about this time as when the United States handed over leadership of the world to China or anybody else or kept leadership of the world. What will strike them is that the United States did abysmally in handling the COVID-19 pandemic and crisis. Okay. Um, everybody talked about how, you know, the, all observers talk about how, well, COVID-19 needed to be managed properly because if you just shut down the economy, uh, if you just shut down all interaction, if you went into circuit breaker lockdown, you basically drove the economy into a hole. Yeah, you kept people safe by drove the economy into a hole, but what you needed was some kind of trade-off. Did America make the right trade-off? Well, let's look at some numbers. Um, China, deaths per million from COVID-19, three. Three deaths per million, cumulatively. China's economic performance, its growth this year is going to be 1.9%. It's positive. Everywhere else in the world, growth is negative. But other nations have done well. Done well, you know, any death that's before its time is not doing well. But relatively speaking, Singapore, five deaths per million. New Zealand, 5.2 deaths per million. The United States, 900 deaths per million. The numbers are so starkly different. America's economy, negative growth. America did not sacrifice people so that its economy could grow. Its economy shrank. Its unemployment rose 20.5 million count in April 2020 alone, bringing the U.S. unemployment rate from the lowest it had been in the last 50 years to the highest it had been in nine decades. America has not had a good pandemic. So when I look at what America has done, leader of the world, and I compare that to, hmm, is it a trusted, main, has it done trusted maintenance of a level playing field? Does it still do performance legitimacy? Are its political leaders and its public servants capable of delivering public goods and services to its own people? Is it providing a best practice example to emulate, not exactly coming out five-star on any of these indicators. And then finally, it's inability to compete in an economic marketplace that it itself built. The trade war with China came from the idea that China is now a threat to America's economic prosperity, a claim that has very thin evidence. And this is not to excuse China's uh, economic practices, you know, many of some of which are in fact uh, uh, suspicious, uh, 
but America has not attempted to to compete, to continue to compete in that marketplace in a way that that respects the rules of the game. Instead, the way it's behaved is like, well, you know, I'm losing the game now, so I'm going to pick up the goalposts and walk off the field. This is not the kind of behavior we look for in a provider. So let me finish up. So having said all this, is this wishful thinking relative to Kenneth Waltz and Thucydides as a small state, all of us here in this room speaking this way, are we just whistling in the wind? So I, I finished this presentation by, by providing some historical examples where small states have actually won out against great powers. In other words, to use the economics terminology of a demand curve and a supply curve, small states have been able to exercise agency and extract elasticity from great powers. So there are examples, Nicaragua versus the United States from 1978. Uh, the, no, the United States invaded Nicaragua. Nicaragua took the United States to the International Court of Justice. International Court of Justice said that America's actions were illegal. America said, uh, we do not respect your jurisdiction. We are a great power. Nicaragua is a small state. We do not respect the ICJ. And that seemed to be the end of it. Thucydides won out. But actually, no, because a couple of years after that, America became better friends with Nicaragua. And Nicaragua's example is now thought of as a new variant of foreign legal policy, being able to extract elasticity from a great power. Singapore, numerous examples of how Singapore, a small state, has been able to, to stand up to and extract elasticity from great powers. Now, I've taken up a lot of your time. Let me just finish up. Cuba is another example. Saudi Arabia is another. There are historical uh, uh, things that we can delve into. None of this is to say that I support the regime in Saudi Arabia. I support the regime in Cuba. I'm simply studying how Cuba, for instance, defied the Soviet Union, defied the United States, withstood a U.S.-led trade embargo for 50 years. The United States tried to invade Cuba as well. It switched. Uh, Cuba played the field in terms of looking at different allies and it partnered the rest of its region, smaller states in the rest of its region, to advance the variance of regionalism and economic integration, which worked for it and for the other nations. So there's example after example of this that shows how small states actually do stand up on the demand side, are able to extract elasticity from the large one, which gives me hope because the fact that we're now at a point in history, in geopolitical history, moving away from the American century, moving away from that vertical hierarchy to something else, I suggest that that something else can be this marketplace for world order. But to make it work properly, we've got to work at it. Small states will need to band together with like-minded coalitions of the capable. Small states will have to look for situations where it is not power or size that determines outcomes. COVID-19 is an example of that. Uh, expertise in financial regulation is another. America has, for, for, for all of this history, 
sought to be both the world's financial regulator and the world's number one military force. And we have, the rest of the world have succumbed to this vision that the leader of the world had to be all of these things. But it's appropriate to ask, if you want to regulate financial markets, why do you need an aircraft carrier? These things should be separate. And we should be looking for areas, domains of expertise, where leadership can emerge from all over the world in knowledge, in regulation, in ideas that have nothing to do with the vertical hierarchy of power and size. I'm finished. What have I told? What have I talked about? I've talked about great power competition in the marketplace for world order. I've taken us through a range of ideas about why world order matters. I've told you about the history, the arc of world order and its outcome, why I am not with Hajun or Donald Trump in criticizing that structure. I think it did a lot of good, but it's also time to move on. So I've given you some ideas about the new models that we might move towards. So thank you very much for your attention. I'm going to stop sharing the screen. Thank you. Over to you, Robert, please. Danny, thank you very much. And while James. Robert turns on his camera, please. Um, we're looking forward to his reactions and comments. And I will hold off on my chair's prerogative <laughs> until later in the Q&A. Robert, please. Thanks, James. Okay, can you hear? Can you see? Yes, you hear? we hear you fine. Okay, well, great. Um, I found that, um, uh, as I always do with Danny's talks, uh, very stimulating, and partly because I find a lot both to agree with and to disagree with. So let me just begin with China, um, because China features um, so largely in, in Danny's talk. I would guess, for example, that the reason for the very rapid run-up of the globalization lift uh, after 2000 um, from like, um, what is it, the share of developing countries uh, relative in uh, total GDP relative to that of the total GDP of the G7 went from about 30%, 35% up to 2000 uh, to almost 100% by 2020. I mean, that is a very dramatic rise, no doubt. And my guess is that a large part of that is one country, uh, which is to say China. Um, and, th and that's a really important point uh, to make. And just to uh, elaborate on this point about the exceptionalism of China, let me remind you that as long ago as 1750, 1750, David Hume uh, wrote a letter to a friend saying, it's a very good thing that China is so far away because if it was closer, everything we consume would be made in China. That was in 1750. And the, the larger point is that right up till, let's say, I don't know, the 16th, possibly 17th century, China technologically was far ahead of Europe. And the, the relevance of that is that China's performance today is essentially a catch-up. China is restoring its previously, uh, for the last, uh, uh, before 1500, for a thousand years before 1500, was the preeminent uh, technological center of the world. And so you can't treat China as a kind of larger 
uh, uh, is, is like um, other developing countries, just much bigger. China is quite exceptional. So uh, that's the first point I want to make, um, the exceptionality of China. And uh, just as if George Soros were to become a professor at LSE, and George Soros occasionally indicated he would like to become a professor at LSE, the average wealth of LSE professors would be multiplied by several thousand times overnight. Um, we have to remember that China is so much bigger than all the other developing countries. And to simply put it in and make, take an average of all of them uh, can be misleading. So that's the first point. The second point is about Danny's picture of the American century, uh, his basic point being that the world order uh, uh, of the American century worked very well. And I take his points, but I want to just remind us um, of uh, certain uh, points, uh, namely that since the Second World War, since the Second World War, since 1960, let us say, very few developing countries have moved from the middle income range using World Bank thresholds to the high income range. Um, and those few countries that have made that move in terms of their average income include a tiny fraction of the world's population. So take from 1960 to more or less today, um, less than 10% of the middle income countries in 1960 moved into high income. And some of those should not be even included in that I mean, for example, Equatorial Guinea, for example, is one of those few countries that made that move. Um, and also Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, so, uh, and then the IMF uh, economists have done a, a, a study which basically finds the same uh, bottom line using rather different thresholds. In other words, there's been remarkably little catch up um, in terms of developing countries becoming developed countries by any plausible criteria of developed. And then on the other hand, there's also been a sort of glass floor in the world economy such that very few developed countries have moved down. Um, maybe Argentina uh, and, uh, would be a case in point, but for the most part, for the great majority of developed countries, once developed, they manage in one way or another to stay developed and almost all developing countries stay developing countries. So, I mean, th this puts, I think, a rather different um, complexion on the argument that um, the American century, the world order uh, worked well um, and just one specific point, this phrase, the level playing field, uh, which has recurred throughout Danny's talk. Um, remember that um, many developing countries, uh, for example, those uh, organized by Latin American countries during the 1970s, pressing for a new international economic order, and those speaking through UNCTAD have been making the case for something more than a level playing field. They argue that unequal players um, do not need an, a level playing field. They need um, rules which um, uh, offset 
their, um, un, uh, their inequality. They need, for example, and this is the key phrase that's always used, special and differential treatment. Special and differential treatment is something different from a level playing field. And um, so that's a point that I think is worth making. Uh, my third point um, is on the question, Danny's key question of will um, something like the American century uh, and its world order, will it continue uh, with the, the Western countries on top, so to speak, in, in a hierarchy? And, um, uh, and Danny uh, argues that we are moving away from a linear hierarchy with the West on top and developing countries uh, underneath, so to speak, in a, an economic and a power hierarchy. And I want to just raise some um, empirical um, points which um, question Danny's argument um, and which suggests that indeed the uh, linear hierarchy model or something close to it will continue for some time. And my first piece of evidence is to do with the distribution of corporate profits in the world. So this is the summary. Divide the world economy into 25 sectors, 25 sectors, and take the distribution of profits of companies operating in those 25 sectors in terms of where those companies are headquartered. And um, the bottom line is that between 2007 and 2017, um, American companies had the biggest share of profits in 18 out of the 25 sectors. And of those 18, uh, in the 18 were included uh, all the sort of high, the sectors that we call high-tech sectors. So American firms are really dominant in terms of the distribution of, uh, of profits. Um, and similarly in patents, I mean, if you take, for example, triadic patents, that is patents registered in the US, in Europe and Japan, these are the most valuable patents, 60% of triadic patents are held by um, companies which are American or Japanese. Uh, very few triadic patents are held by Chinese companies. So that indicates something of the technological supremacy of American and Europe and Japanese companies. The third piece of evidence is, is calculated by um, Yilmaz Akyuz, the Turkish economist who worked for a long time with UNCTAD. And the bottom line is that he finds that between 2006 and 2018, over that long period, um, the nine uh, developing countries in the G20 have transferred um, uh, 2.3% of their combined GDP per year, per year, 2.3% of their combined GDP per year to um, the core countries. And this is mostly four countries, namely the US, um, Germany, uh, France, and Britain. Oh, no, sorry, uh, Japan is in there. Four, I think France is not in there. Um, and so there's the, the basic point is that there is... A, through the institutional arrangements of the world economy, there is this enormous flow of resources from developing countries, big developing countries, 
to a small number of countries in the core. Um, and w one could go on, uh, for example, the, the point about the US dollar. Is there any serious prospect that the US dollar will be replaced in the foreseeable future? I mean, I'm talking of the next 20 years uh, by some other currency or by Bitcoin or who knows what. And I think the answer to that is no, because of the power of the lock-in of the dollar as the reserve currency. And then, so, and I could go on pointing to various pieces of evidence about the continuing um, economic uh, dominance of um, the Western countries. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll finish on, the, on just making two more points. One of them is that when talking about power, one has to distinguish between instrumental power or relational power and structural power. Structural power is the power to set rules and then the power that accrues to the rule maker by virtue of having set the rules. And the point is that um, so much of the world economy today continues to be governed by rules that were created um, in, in previous decades, for example, starting at Bretton Woods, um, by the Western countries. And these rules very much rebound just through the sheer functioning of the world economy. Um, uh, the, the Western countries that set the rules get disproportionate benefits by virtue of having set these rules. That's the dividend they get from their structural power. And the final point I'll make is that Danny has um, talked a lot about states, about the network model of states, um, about the supply and demand model of states. But um, one of the things I think that has been happening, especially in the last two to three decades, is the, uh, the very great um, increase in the density, the extensiveness of non-state networks. Um, it happened that just a couple of days ago, I gave a talk to the International Chamber of Commerce, which is um, an example of a non-state network, though in that case, it was established in 1919, so at the same year as the ILO. But the point is there are now very dense networks um, of uh, entities uh, all engaged in formulating global um, perspectives, global agendas. And so any model of the world order today has to bring in interlocking networks, not just of states, but also of non-state actors. Robert, thank you very much um, for insightful commentary. While we're still on live on YouTube, uh, Danny, would you like to make a brief response to Robert before we then uh, go to um, to close the public session and open up to the LSE community for Q&A? Yeah, thank you, James, and thank you, Robert, for, for your very detailed reading, Robert. Uh, so, so, yeah, no, I, I do have lots that I'd like to respond on, but, you know, as you, we only have very limited time here, so maybe I'll just take take one point which is that I, just as I, I think it is inappropriate to, to, to take out uh, counterexamples that don't fit the norm, I also think that 
depending on the question that we are interested in, it's also inappropriate to slice and dice out large states like China for being not, uh, you know, for, for, for skewing the statistics. I think that having China in the globalization lift, I mean, it is uh, 1.4 billion people taking that out, taking the, the benefits that those people have actually um, been able to to earn for themselves in the old world system, in the old world order, is a, is a distortion of what that old order actually delivered. China did not rise in, the, in, in that system just on its own volition. It did that in tandem with the rules of the game. And it did that in ways that are, are very nuanced. Uh, lots of ways in which you know, it cheated. Lots of ways in which it did the right thing. Uh, lots of ways in which it's still trying to improve its behavior under that system. Having noted all that, I would like to to continue to carry along China as part of this globalization lift idea. The rest of uh, Robert's comments, you know, I I agree with. I might take quibble. I might quibble with the idea that uh, the middle income trap, which you you stayed away from using that particular phrasing, is as real as as we we. Uh, you know, is as is as substantive uh, a challenge as as we might want it to be. It's true that there's not a great deal of intra distribution churning. It's very difficult to find instances of the bottom somebody in the bottom twenty five percent, a nation in the bottom twenty five percent, transiting to being in the top seventy five percent. But we're thinking about those kinds of intra distribution changes in a global economy that's growing. The bottom 25% can still be can be in the bottom 25% still over time, but its people could be dramatically better off due to growth in incomes. That's something that you know we might need to, to agree to disagree on. I do not think that the middle income trap viewed in that way is as stiff a challenge um, that we could put up to the to the to thinking about the current world order as, as it might be. Thank you, Danny. And thanks for tuning in to this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series from 2020 to 2021. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search for International Development LSE. And you can stay informed about upcoming events, including the next series of Cutting Edge Issues lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website or find us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.